I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BHI, the Henderson Institute, and this is our Thinkers and Ideas podcast. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dori Clark. She's a consultant, an author, keynote speaker on primarily, it seems to me, self-development topics. She also teaches at Duke and uh, Columbia. She's been named by Thinkers 50 as one of the top 50 business thinkers and also as a top communication coach by Marshall Goldsmith. She's written many books, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You and Stand Out, and her latest book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, has been out some time now. I think I can explain what the book is about by quoting a phrase from the book. You say that with small methodical steps taken every day, almost anything is attainable and frequently sooner than we might imagine. So welcome, Dory. Martin, thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. So you've written this book, The Long-Term Game. I think we we all know the, at least in theory, the merits of long-term thinking, but why did you write this book and why did you write it now? Well, in many ways, the situation changed profoundly from the time when I first was developing the idea for the book to the present moment, because of course the pandemic intervened. And as I was conceptualizing the book, we were all living in a world, and I know I was, and, and perhaps you and many of your listeners can relate where it seemed like pre-COVID, everyone was just racing around at this frenzied pace. We were all traveling too much. We were all just going too hard. And that was preventing many of us from being able to lift our heads up and engage in long-term thinking because there was just the press of the urgent. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic happens and the world flips around. We have all the time in the world. And yet, ironically, short-term thinking actually exponentially increased during that time because none of us felt like we could make long-term plans. Everything was changing on a dime. Oh, well, the conference is going to be in July now. Nope, it's going to be in September. Nope, we're going to have it in in January. And so I think in many ways, we got out of the habit of long-term thinking, if, if there even had been a habit. And so part of why I'm so passionate about the topic of long-term thinking is it's never been something that is easy. Human nature mitigates against that. Certainly for public companies, the the pressures of the market mitigate against it. But it's even harder now because for so many of us, we got into ruts of short-term thinking during the pandemic. And I think it's time for us to forcibly extricate ourselves from it and really ask the question, is there a better way? Can we train ourselves, retrain ourselves to enhance our long-term perspective? So before we get into the ideas in the book, it struck me that a lot of what you say at the level of an individual about how to think long-term would also be applicable at the corporate level. And I wondered, are these two problems the same problem, or is there an essential difference between individual long-term thinking and corporate long-term thinking? I think the problems are very aligned, for sure. Although in some ways, it's cleaner when it comes to the individual. I think one of the, the biggest challenges at the corporate level is that even if you are a smart leader, you're theoretically a strategic leader, at the end of the day, even if you have good intentions, oftentimes your incentives are not really aligned with the companies because you're maybe going to be there five years and the company, God willing, is going to be there for 20 or 50 or 100 years. But it's often hard for even good intentioned people to make the choice that brings a lot of pain today, but brings benefit 25 years down the road. 
that's actually part of why Amazon has seen such great success because for so many years it was run by the guy who founded it. And so there was a profound alignment of incentives. I think that's what caught my eye. I mean, in a sense, if I can put words in your mouth, you're saying it's hard for a corporation to be long-term if the individuals in it are not. And therefore, I think worth talking about this individual level. Normally, this podcast deals with strategy matters, but, but essentially it boils down to the perspectives of the individual. That's right. That's, that's absolutely right. And of course, this is not something that is impossible to overcome, but it needs to be named and identified and, and thought about. But I, I think that when it comes to us as individuals, when we're thinking about our own lives, our own careers, of course, our interests are very aligned with the interest of ourselves in the future. Although ironically, it is interesting, a lot of psychology research has shown that at some kind of primal level, we often make choices as though we will be a different person in the future. And so part of some of these, these financial literacy exercises have things like you know, showing pictures of us 30 years in the future so that we can remind ourselves, oh, wow, I'm saving for this person who's going to be me. Because uh, in some parts of our, our primal brain, we don't fully believe that. But ultimately, for most of us, we can get to the point where we realize, okay, the benefit of the sacrifices we're making today will accrue to us in the future. And hopefully that leads to better alignment and better choices. So let's get into some of the uh, the tactics, because in a sense, I, I can't imagine that any of our listeners will be opposed to the idea of long-term thinking, but I guess it's the challenge of, of putting that intention into action. So the first thing you deal with is creating white space, freeing us up from the, from the busy work so that we can think about the big stuff and the long-term stuff. What's, what's the essence of the art of doing that? Yes, this often is a huge challenge that prevents a lot of people from even engaging in strategic thinking just, just out of the gate because they don't have the, the bandwidth for it. It's not that it takes a huge amount of time to do strategic thinking, obviously. You know, this is not about, oh, you need to take a sabbatical. Oh, you need to go to an ashram. That is both not practical for most people, but also not necessary for most people. But the issue is you do need some time you do at least need enough pockets where you're not in a frenzy racing around that you actually can step back and look at some bigger questions, some important ones about, should I even be doing this? Are these the right things to be doing? Should I be delegating this? Should I be pursuing a new vein? And it's often easier. It's kind of a numbing device sometimes if we have hard questions we don't know the answers to or don't want to know the answers to, to just keep doing it. But we do need to step back. So I would say that one of the most important things really is about drawing tighter boundaries when it comes to what we're saying yes to. Now, of course, we all know that intellectually, but I'll, I'll give you one very basic tactic that I have found to be incredibly helpful, which is there are a lot of people that are actually incredibly vague in their correspondence when they're asking for something, they're asking for time. You know, it's either because they're busy and they're not really thinking about it, or there might actually be some kind of subterfuge, like they don't really want you to know. And so what I have really become religious about is anytime someone makes a vague request, oh, hey, Dory, can we hop on a call? There's something I want to ask you about. I'm no longer going for the politesse of, oh, I guess it's important. Oh, I guess I'll let them tell me over the phone. Absolutely not. I write back every time. Great. I'd love to help if I can. What do you want to talk about? 
And I make people spell it out and specify it because what I have learned, and I'm sure you and your listeners have as well, is that other people's sense of what actually warrants live conversations in FaceTime can be radically different. And we have to become exceedingly aggressive about protecting those boundaries and edges. In a sense, all of the short-term demands on the time, though, they, they have some sort of legitimacy. There's always some sort of reason for, for hopping on a Zoom call. If one set out to you know, reduce that non-essential use of time by, say, 20 30%, I mean, what are some of the pragmatic moves that one can make? Well, one of my favorite strategies that I talk about in the book, and, and this is an example of an enterprise-level strategy that I think also has great applications for us as individuals, is something that Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry talks about, and that is the concept of deciding what to be bad at. What she and her co-author, Anne Morris, talk about in their book, Uncommon Service, is the idea that the reason that most companies are just so profoundly average, so profoundly non-memorable is, you know, it's, it's certainly not for lack of desire to be great. Everyone would like to be great. But the problem is they are not willing to make hard choices. You can't be great at something and then perfectly average at everything else. That is not how it works. In order to expend the time, the energy, the resources to be truly great at something, you have to be willing to be subpar, to be bad at something else. And that is such a painful choice for most companies. They refuse to make it and they therefore never achieve greatness. I think that we need to become relentless and it is painful and no one wants to do it, but we need to become relentless about choosing what we're going to be bad at and be willing to say, you know what, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to touch that. Or if I do, I recognize it will be bad. And, you know, I think many of us do this in a de facto sense, but we need to get really clear about it. I mean, my mother, I think about her, she sends, she like hand makes gifts for like literally every one of my cousins and extended family. I don't even know my cousin and extended family's birthdays. I don't even know them because I decided long ago that that is a place that I'm going to let go because I need to focus my energy somewhere else. So I guess this relates to the idea of focusing on what to do, what not to do. And there's an interesting idea in the book, which you call uh, optimizing for interesting. Tell us about optimizing for interesting. Yeah, thank you, Martin. Well, you know, certainly there is a lot of talk in our current corporate life about how we choose what we do. I mean, I think everyone has essentially come to the conclusion that if we are optimizing only for money, that that is, is typically a bad move, that people might end up unhappy, although plenty of people still do it. But in the discourse, in the public discourse, we often tend to have a binary where it seems like the only choices are either optimize for money and just, you know, have the cash grab job or optimize for meaning. And then you're, you know, nailing huts for Habitat for Humanity or, you know, something like that. And it's just this, this pure polarity of money versus doing good in the world. And, you know, I mean, both of those are, are fine. There's no judgments. But I, I think that for most people, that kind of dualism really doesn't work. I think instead, people would like to find another way. They'd like to find something that feels like, and this is a theme I know you're interested in, that, you know, that, that gives them some sense of purpose. But even that is incredibly weighty for people. I know many, many people that feel almost shameful or, or paralyzed because they don't know what their purpose is and they feel bad about it. They feel inadequate. 
And so I put forward a concept called optimizing for interesting, because I, I feel like, frankly, it's a, it's a more helpful starting point. If you end up understanding what your purpose is, magnificent, but it's tough to start there because sometimes you just really don't know. But a place to get there is if you keep optimizing for choices that feel interesting to you, which is something that most of us can identify relatively easily, it begins to carve a path for us to actually reach something that feels purposeful. Yeah, I, I, I guess tuned into a different dimension of that uh, optimizing for interesting, which is you can apply the idea of something being interesting as a, a sort of prioritization tool early in the development of something. In other words, you don't have to know everything about where that thing will lead in order to say, well, let me take the next step. Is that another nuance of optimizing for interesting? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the, the key elements that I really try to drive in the long game is that there are always going to be a lot more things we don't know as compared to things that we do. It's uncertain outcomes. It's even uncertain what we'll end up liking or enjoying. But as long as we can keep making small, good, reasonable choices, it enables us to pivot later on. And we don't have to feel bad about that. That's a perfectly fine process and, and prospect. But it's hard to go wrong if you keep making choices about things that seem interesting to you, because you at least will never get yourself into a situation where you hate your life, where you hate what you're doing, which unfortunately, too many people are in that situation. And I, I would like us to take a more incrementalist approach, but you know, to, to recognize, all right, I don't know if this is you know, my soulmate career. I don't know if this is my meaning in life, but it's interesting. And that means, okay, it's worth exploring. Let's see where it goes. Another powerful idea from the book I found was your idea of four career waves, four waves of different ways of relating to a topic. You have learning, creating, connecting, and reaping. And if I can quote from the book, you say, like ocean tides, we need to learn to ride each wave and then transition into the next. Trying to hold on to a wave for too long leads to frustration and stagnation. Tell us a little bit about this idea of waves. Yeah, thank you, Martin. I know with the clients that I have worked with that sometimes when I'm dealing with folks who, you know, and it's not infrequent, where sometimes they, they will come to me and they say, oh, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm in a rut. I feel like, you know, somehow just things aren't clicking, things aren't progressing. And you dig a little bit. And oftentimes what you realize is a very common problem is that people have just kept doing the same thing. They've kept doing the thing that they have been successful at for too long. And I think one of the most important elements that I believe is necessary for career success and that I write about in the long game is the fact that before we get to that point where we're frustrated, where we're feeling like, oh, I'm drying everything and I'm you know, slogging through mud, we have to get smart about recognizing that you know, we're not robots. You know, the goal is not you, know, you just plug the widgets into the assembly line forever. It's the opposite for knowledge workers. And we need to get smart about recognizing that we actually have to be the ones that are pushing before that moment into the new terrain. Otherwise, you know, nobody's going to tell us to do it. We have to get savvy about recognizing that moment. But when we do, it enables us to grow. And just briefly, I mean, the first stage is learning, which of course makes sense, right? You get to a new job, a new industry, you've got to figure things out. That's fine. The second stage, which not enough people get to, is the creating phase, which is, okay, you've taken things in, 
Now it's time to start contributing. Speak up in the meetings. Start writing. Start speaking. Start telling people your ideas so that you're actually adding value. That's important. Number three is connecting because all the ideas in the world are not going to get you very far if other people don't know them, if somehow we're not sharing them in a way that makes it useful for other people or for your company to deploy. And then we finally get to the, to the reaping phase, which a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I've made it now. You know, you're, you're recognized, you're respected, you're probably making good money. But the problem is that as with all things, the market changes and yeah, you, you know better than just about anyone at, uh, at BCG that you can't afford to, to ride a wave for too long without being thoughtful about that process. And sometimes we need to move into a new quadrant for ourselves. And thinking that through as an individual, not just AOL milking its dial-up, but we can't allow ourselves to do that either. It has bad outcomes. Another thing that uh, deals with multiple timescales I found interesting was your idea of networking on three timescales. You talk about long-term, short-term, and infinite horizon networking. I guess these all bracket under your third category we just spoke about of, of connecting, different ways of connecting. Tell us about the time horizons of connecting. Why, why is that important and how does that fit into cultivating long-term thinking? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to connecting and, and building networks, I mean, this is something that obviously is extremely important in our professional lives. Just about everybody recognizes that. But it's also true that there is a not insubstantial number of professionals, including very, very highly successful professionals that will admit that they hate networking, that they just can't stand it. And it's always kind of befuddled me in some ways because I, I think of it as one of the great pleasures in life. But what I've come to realize is that they just mean something very different by networking. I would argue it's a little bit of a caricature of networking because anybody logical, anybody with you know half a heart or half a brain would hate a situation where either you are coming at someone trying to extract something from them as a stranger or having somebody do that to you. Of course, that's an uncomfortable situation that no one would like. If that was all networking were, then any sensible person would, would dislike it. But I really want to make the point that that's, that's one piece. That's short-term networking. Oh, you, I need a thing. You have a thing. Let me get it. That is not the totality of networking. In fact, that is bad networking. The two other types that I think are actually the way to do it, which are much more important, there's long-term networking, which, you know, I'd say the good networkers do it. You recognize somebody that is interesting, somebody you probably have something in common with, you know, I don't know what he can get me, quote unquote, I don't know what I can get him, but we should get to know each other and something good will evolve over time. That's a great way to network. You just build the relationship because you think the person is interesting. But the part that even good networkers often miss is what I call infinite horizon networking. And that is building relationships with people that on the surface literally have nothing in common with you. They might be an astronaut. They might be a comedian. They might be a horse breeder. It might be completely irrelevant. But the interesting thing about life so often is that over time, those can become some of the more transformative relationships you have, either because somehow you've pivoted to become closer to them or maybe they inspire you in some way that you didn't expect, or they pivot to become closer to you. And that can become the, the sort of secret sauce that we often overlook. 
I mean, I'm, I'm curious, Martin, how you think about this. You're uh, a pretty busy guy, a pretty well-connected guy. What does networking mean to you and how do you think about it? Well, I guess I'm a great question, actually. I, I guess I'm um, one of these introverted people that finds transactional networking quite painful and uh, abhorrent, as you say. So I, uh, I guess it becomes palatable, enjoyable, and productive for me when I focus on, I combine two of your ideas, actually. One of them is infinite horizon networking. The other one is optimizing for interesting. I find that it's one of life's oblique goals. You never know what somebody will have to offer and um, what you'll be able to offer them. But if there's something that provokes curiosity, it usually over time leads to some good good place. So I'm not sure whether that's an example of, of what you're, you're talking about in your book, but that's, uh, that's how it applies to me. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I really think that we go so wrong when we think of business as being separate from life. I know sometimes, you know, people have a thing about, you know, oh, well, I don't, I don't like to ask people about their jobs. You know, I like to, to get into it and really get to know them as a person. You know, for, for me personally, and I feel like for, for, for most people, if they are in the fortunate position that many of us are being leaders in companies or having interesting work, me as a business professional is not, it should not be separate from me as a person. To me, that's what it means to be self-actualized is that those things are extremely intimately linked. And there's almost nothing more interesting than finding a cool colleague, you know, whether they're in the same field or a different field to be able to, to build a relationship with and to connect with. I mean, in the long game, I tell the story about a guy who was, uh, he's this Israeli entrepreneur and he was volunteering at a charity in Israel for immigrants, to welcome new immigrants. And he got to know this, this guy who was a staffer there. And they just knew, you know, they knew each other through the volunteer work. Years later, the staffer gets a job at a tech accelerator. And so he invites the entrepreneur guy to come in as a speaker. And he ends up, as a result of that, meeting these entrepreneurs who were visiting from Brazil. He ends up joining the board of the Brazilian company you know, potentially having this, you know, kind of impressive payoff as a board member of this successful startup. But this is not out of calculation. This is out of an organic relationship that he built years before because of an interest in giving back societally. To me, that's, that's the exemplification of what we're talking about. Well, that segues nicely into a couple of ways in which I wanted to um, politely challenge the ideas in your book. I guess one of them is is the self versus the other. So um, in a certain sense, your book is about individual strategies. And you even say that employing these strategies of long-termism can lead to personal competitive advantage. I guess at the other extreme, self-centeredness also has its, its problems. And I wondered about how you reconcile the ideas in your book with other centricity or mutualism. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, to be clear, when I'm talking about having you know, long-term strategy for, for your life and, and how you want things to go. It's certainly not about uh, some kind of Machiavellian uh, optimization strategy. I think that at a fundamental level, if we're truly thinking long-term, we recognize that there are consequences to our actions. We recognize that people actually pop up and stick around for a really long time. And so if we want to be successful, True success actually is either a collaborative endeavor or at least an endeavor that does not harm other people. One of the, the stories that I tell in the long game is about a, a colleague of mine named Alyssa Cohn, and she's an executive coach. She's an author. 
And she ended up signing up for this class, which was, you know, it's just kind of this, this fun thing. She was a big fan of the musical Hamilton. And so as a result of that, she signed up for a new project that Lin-Manuel Miranda had done, which is called Freestyle Love Supreme Academy. And it was a series of courses to train you in improv hip hop rap. And she was like, oh, good. It'll be, you know, me and a bunch of Hamilton fans. This will be really cool. And so she signs up, she goes to this class and she immediately realizes like, oh no, it's not her and a bunch of Hamilton fans. It's her and a bunch of 20-year-old guys who are basically professional rappers. <laughs> and she was so uncomfortable. She emailed her instructor that, that night and said, oh, I think I'm in the wrong place. I think I should drop out. And he wrote back and he actually wrote back with such wisdom. And he said, Alyssa, the point is not to turn you into a professional rapper. The point is to help you become a more creative and a more uninhibited person. That's why we're offering the classes. And she realized, oh, right. She had kind of gotten distracted by seeing all of these people that she felt were more proficient than she was. But ultimately, the reason she signed up is she wanted to become more creative and uninhibited. And I think that we need to fall back on the question for, you know, for all of us, we need to ask the question, who do we want to become? And how can we make the choices over the long term that will enable us to become more like that? So I think a lot of what we've been talking about, Dory, is helpful at the level of individuals self-actualizing, achieving their goals. I'd like to visit the, uh, the leadership dimension for a second. So leaders, in a sense, are in the business of making other people successful. How do we take the ideas that you frame primarily for self-actualization in the book and put them to the, the purpose of leadership, whether it be by creating the right environment to do some of the things you suggest in the book or by perhaps practicing some leadership version of some of the techniques that you, uh, you suggest. What's the intersection with leadership? Yeah, this is an important question, Martin. I mean, certainly, as you know, one of the most important roles of a leader is to create a shared vision so that people are rowing in the same direction, so that there is a, a shared goal that people want to aspire toward. And if that's the case, then ideally what that leader can do with his or her people is to really help them think through systematically, all right, well, if, if we're bought into this outcome that we all want, what are the steps that each of us can take to help get there collectively? I think that's, that's really important because, you know, for any of us, I mean, this is, this is why people have executive coaches, no matter how smart you are, no matter how high up you are in the, in the corporate ladder, it is very hard for us to have a proper perspective on ourselves. And so a gift that a leader can give his or her people is to really, you know, help them zoom out a little bit and be able to make sense, you know, amidst all the emails and the meetings and all the day-to-day -day things that are pressing for their attention, to be able to step back and say, all right, you know, what's, what's the domino that we need to tip that can make all of this happen? What is the most important thing you can be working on? What is the most important strategic choice that you can be doing to get us to the place that we need to go to? And, you know, asking questions and really also understanding, in addition to the shared enterprise level vision that you're all working toward, every individual has their own vision. They have their own personal aspirations. You know, maybe this one really wants to get more into video editing. Maybe that one really wants to become a better public speaker. I mean, whatever it is, but understanding what those things are and helping, helping them see and take action 
on the long-term steps that can help make it more likely that they will arrive at their personal goals is one of the best gifts that we can give our people. So unfortunately, we're approaching the, uh, the end of our time, Dory, but I want to ask you uh, one final personal question. You've written about many things, entrepreneurship and self-development and uh, other things. And uh, I wondered, is there a next big project, a next book in the works? And what will that be about? Well, I, I'm going very meta on this one, Martin, because the book, of course, is the long game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. And so a decision that I actually made, a strategic decision, was that I am planning to be working to promote this book for the next five years. Came out last year, so I've got four more years on the docket for it. I actually believe that in the past, you know, I, I pumped out three books in four calendar years, which I am proud of that output and I'm proud of the books. But I realized retrospectively that I did not give each one of them sufficient time on its own to prosper. And so I, I am realizing and trying to make manifest with this book about long-term thinking that one of the best things that we can do for any idea or cause or project that we care about is to devote the most important resource, which is our time, to making it happen rather than just assuming that if we give it a, a push for a few months, things will take care of itself. And so I'm actually going deep on this and planning to be beating the drum hopefully long enough to turn this into something that will become, I hope, a well-read and uh, you know, possibly even classic uh, business book that can, that can hopefully help a lot of people. Well, it's certainly an internal theme and uh, thanks for sharing with us today, Dory. Martin, thank you so much. So I've been speaking to Dory Clark about a new book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, which came out September last year from HBR Press. I think well worth reading for individuals to make more creative use of their time, for leaders looking to set the environments for individuals to be able to do that. And, and also speaking as a strategist, I, I think it was a fairly thought-provoking read in terms of the intersection of personal attitudes towards long-termism and the ability of the corporation to be a long-term. So thanks very much again, Dory. Thank you, Martin.